I'm going to read all of Genesis 25 to keep it in context, but my message is going to be focused on the second half of the chapter from, uh, from verses 19 to 34. Genesis 25. Abraham took another wife, whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimram, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dadan. The sons of Dadan were Asherim, Letushim, and Lemuim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanok, Abida, and Elda. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. All the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years, Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the, Zohar, uh, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham had purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Abdil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tima, Jetur, Naphish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he, when he took Rebekah to be his wife, the daughter of Bethuel the Aramean of Padanaram, the sister of Laban the Aramean. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah his wife conceived. The children struggled within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was, ex he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let, e let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. 
Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless this reading to our hearts this morning. Please be seated. And let's pray again together. Heavenly Father, as we approach your holy scriptures this morning, Lord, we see things that to our human understanding appear to us to be unfair. As we see one brother chosen and another brother rejected. Especially as we see that the brother who is chosen is not the one who has the traditional rights to be chosen. Lord, as we see behavior that, that we, we find shameful, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see ourselves here. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that, that, for, our, that, that for our behavior is, is also far too easily shameful. That we far too easily reflect the behavior of, of Jacob in manipulating others and scheming against them. Or we also reflect the behavior of Esau who who, who forget who we really are, forget a birthright, forget the inheritance. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see, as we look at this passage this morning, that you would help us to see your sovereign grace on your elect people. Lord, here in this passage, we see an individual chosen who really, from a point of view of justice, had no right to be chosen. Well, Lord, if we have any sense of, of our sin, and please give us a sense this morning, we understand that there is nothing in us that would cause us to choose you either, or to, or to be choosed of you either. Lord, that we too, who are in your kingdom, are there because of your sovereign grace, because we are your bride, the elect for whom Jesus died. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see these things this morning. We pray that you would help us to respond with faith and obedience. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we heard from the kids this morning, sibling rivalry is alive and well. well I know in our home it's, it's interesting and, and frankly sad for us to watch our boys interact sometimes. I'm sure... Most parents can say the same things about their children in their homes. Although our boys usually get along pretty well, the, the, the area where the behavior needs the most correction is in their interaction with each other. And often we know that, that when children grow up that the issues will get worked out. At least that's what parents hope is going to happen. But in our home at least, right now we see instead that the issues are intensified with the arrival of Vivian last week as the boys are trying to adjust to their new positions in the family. So sibling rivalry takes place in the home. 
But sadly, sibling rivalry can also take place between brothers and sisters in the church. Someone gets an opportunity to serve in a particular area or is served by the church in a particular way and, and others say, what about me? Or someone becomes a leader in the church and, and others become jealous. Some strive and, and even through unscrupulous means attempt to get ahead of, of others in the church and then others respond sinfully to that sin. And such attitudes are a failure to see that God's hand of providence is at work and often in ways that you can't see or understand. These issues are a failure to see one's place in the family of God and to see that that comes by God's sovereign grace. They're a failure to recognize that, that as part of the church, we're all part of the same family. We're all part of the same body. We're all on the same side, working to the same end. Such attitudes are a failure to understand the privilege, place, and position that we all have in the family of God, and again, that it comes from God's sovereign grace and election. But as challenging as these issues are, the issues of sibling rivalry that we face in our families, the issues of sibling rivalry that, that we see in the church are nothing compared to the sibling rivalry that we see played out on the pages of Scripture. These issues are often immeasurably intensified because the sibling rivalries that we see in Scripture are often part of a, a much larger battle. A continuation of the battle of, of Genesis 3.15, the age-old conflict between good and evil. The battle between the, the children of God and the children of the devil. We saw that battle in the rivalry between Cain and Abel as, as Cain killed Abel. We saw it in the rivalry between Isaac and Ishmael. And now the rivalry continues between Jacob and Esau. This rivalry is, is going to continue all the way through the Toledot of Isaac into the Toledot of Jacob right to the end of Genesis. The central theme of this Toledot is, is the family inheritance and the conflict surrounding it. We'll see how the, the rivalry between Jacob and Esau threatens the promised seed but how the blessing is preserved for God's chosen vessel by God's faithfulness. Whereas Abraham created the rivalry between Isaac and Ishmael by taking matters into his own hands to father Ishmael, this time Isaac wasn't directly responsible. The, the twins, Jacob and Esau, as we'll see, come, uh, they're born as a result of, of prayer. They're an answer to Isaac's prayer. That being said, Isaac is, is going to do things in his life, we're going to see, that, that exacerbate the rivalry. And, and Jacob, in turn, is, is going to do, to do things even, even worse to foster the rivalry between his sons. Suffice it to say that the, the patriarchs were not exemplary parents. Again, the key, the key theme here is that of God's sovereign election in the line of of blessing. So in Genesis 25 verses 19 to 34, we see Jacob and Esau striving against each other. 
In verses 19 to 23, we're going to see them striving before birth. In, in verses 24 to 28, we're going to see them striving at birth and even after birth. And in verses 29 to 34, we're going to see them striving over the birthright. So first of all, in verses 19 to 23, we see the twins striving before birth. In verse 19, we see that now with the, the Toledot of Ishmael dispensed with, Moses moves on to the eighth Toledot in Genesis, the generations of Isaac. And, and this, this introduction that he gives us is, is typical of the beginning of a new Toledot. These are the generations of, and if you remember that word Toledot simply means generations or the seed. Genesis is divided into, into ten Toledotes. And so the one that we're focusing on here with Isaac and will be for the next, next few months is the, the Toledot of Isaac. These are the generations of Isaac. In the immediate context, the, the Toledot of Isaac mirrors the introduction to the Toledot of Ishmael, reflecting the, the claims that, that Isaac and Ishmael had on Abraham's inheritance. But that's where the similarities end. Whereas the, the Toledot of Ishmael is, is brief, presenting only bare facts, the Toledot of, Toledot of Isaac goes into great detail. The Toledot of Ishmael is only seven verses. The Toledot of Isaac covers 11 chapters. Similarly, we'll see after the Toledot of Isaac that the, Toled, the genealogy of uh, the Toledot of Esau <coughs> is only part of two chapters, whereas the Toledot of Jacob is the focus of 14 chapters. So we see that, that this pattern is that, that God deals with the, the unelect individual, so in this case Esau, and then turns to focus on the elect individual, Jacob. Likewise, likewise we'll see that the, the, um, the, sorry, of Isaac rather, and then, sorry, Ishmael, and then Isaac, and then Esau and Jacob. So God is spending the time focusing on his line of blessing, the, the one through whom he has chosen as the forerunner, the blessings we receive in Christ. So this section begins in, in verses 19 and 20 with a brief segmented genealogy reflecting the line of succession from Abraham to Isaac. Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the sister of Laban, is also listed. And Rebekah and Laban are going to figure very prominently in this Toledot of Isaac. We're told here that Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah. Then in verse 21, we immediately see Isaac praying to the Lord. The, words that, the word that's used here refers to, to pleading or, or making supplication. There's something that is burning in Isaac's heart and he needs to take it to the Lord. He's really off to a good start, isn't he? The question, why is he praying? Well, he's praying because Rebekah, his wife, is barren. Here we go again. Remember the recurring theme of Sarah's barrenness in the life of Abraham. But here we see Isaac praying. We get no sense that, that Abraham prayed for his wife's barrenness. Abraham did pray for the barrenness of the, the woman of Gerar when Abimelech took Sarah into his harem in, in 2017, but, but there's no hint that he prayed regarding, for, prayed regarding Sarah's barrenness. I wonder, when, when you have a problem do you spend your, your time worrying? Or 
and then trying to do everything that you can before going to God in prayer. Think about it. Think about the, the last health situation that, that you were involved in, or one of the more serious health situations. Did you, did you first go to doctors or did you first go to God? Now, I'm not saying that it's wrong to go to doctors. You, you should go to doctors. It's wise to go to doctors. Doctors are given to us as, as, as part of God's common grace. But, but is, is God your, your first port of call? Or is he your last resort? We understand what, what prayer is. That prayer is, is communion between us and Almighty God. Then, then, then prayer is, is both. Prayer is your first port of call, and, and prayer is your last resort, and prayer is everything in between. When you have a trial, when you face a problem in life, do you, do you first go to God with it, and then do you, do you maintain that, that regular prayer, heartfelt, continual prayer to God for it, and then, and then give thanks to Him when He answers that prayer, in, in the, the affirmative or in the negative? Isaac prays. Now, of course, the Lord wants his people to pray. But why is Rebecca barren? If you remember that, that the Lord clearly directed Abraham's servant to Rebecca as, as the one for Isaac. So did the Lord somehow make a mistake? Well, of course not. We understand in Scripture that, that fertility is one of the major blessings that, that's listed uh, as coming from God in Genesis. You can see it in Genesis 1.22 and 28 and 9.1 and 12.2 and 13.6 and so on. That, the, that fertility is often seen in the scripture, especially in Genesis, as, as a sign of God's blessing. But if fertility is a blessing from the Lord, then why is Rebekah infertile? D didn't he clearly lead Abraham's servant to her? Think about it in your, in your own life for a second. Think, think about the, the prayers that, that you've prayed for, for God, even if it's something like, like overcoming sin. And you find that, that you, you pray to God, you pour out your heart to God, and, and then you find, I've, I've had this happen where, where I've gotten up off my knees and, and ended up in, in conflict that I was praying that the God, that God would, would prevent 10 minutes after praying about it. Well, what's happening when, when, when God doesn't answer prayer the way we want or, or when we want? You have to trust that, that God is sovereign, that he, he's doing something greater. And so here in this, in this case with the, the infertility of Rebecca, God is doing something greater. If you look down a couple of verses, you can see we see that, that, he, was, that he immediately were told that he prayed, but then we don't find, for a couple of verses later, we find out that, that she was actually, that Abraham was actually 60. It was, or Isaac rather was 60. He was 20 years later. God did not answer that prayer for 20 years. So think about that. What, what have you been faithfully praying for for 20 years? Don't judge this story by the middle. It's not over yet. Keep praying. By God's grace, be faithful in prayer and watch and see what God will do. But here specifically in this, this issue with Rebecca and her barrenness, think about what's going on here. 
think about the remarkable births that we see in Scripture. Isaac, born to a woman who'd been barren. She didn't give birth to him until she was 90. Jacob, we'll see, we'll see later on in, in Genesis, Joseph, and, and later in Scripture, Samuel. Were, they were all born to mothers who had been infertile. Here in this context, Rebecca's infertility provides a clear link with Abraham's narrative, but more than that, it reveals God's sovereign hand. Abraham's seed is being brought forth and preserved because of Yahweh's divine providence. Rebecca's barrenness highlights God's hand in this birth. He has a, a, a special purpose for this child. Of course, this makes us think of, a, of another remarkable birth that takes place that we celebrate at this time of year, the, the birth of Christ. When, when God works in conception, we're seeing his hand that he is sovereign over birth. Now, of course, the, the purpose for this particular child, for Jacob, is unique, but the Lord always superintends conception, and the birth of children is always under the hand of God, even though most people don't give it much thought. Every child is knit together in the womb by the Lord, every bit as much as, as Isaac and Rebekah's children. God knits them together in the mother's womb. God is sovereign over birth. Now maybe you're here as someone who's struggled with the trial of infertility. I'm sure you prayed for the Lord to provide. I know many couples who struggled with infertility and I know that they prayed. In some cases, God responded by providing them with a child. But in others, he didn't. But either way, the, the takeaway, the, the message here is still the same. God is sovereign over birth. And the, the couples who, who received God, children from the Lord praised the Lord for his kind providence. But the couples who did not receive children also praised the Lord for his kind providence, even in, in, in his grace in the pain. And they, and they saw God bless them in other tangible ways. But here, Isaac prays. And this very same verse, we find out that the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah's wife conceived. But again, even though we find out immediately that the answer doesn't come for another 20 years. Sarah conceives, but, but then in verse 22, we see something strange taking place. The children struggled within her. Now the word that's translated there, struggled, um, refers to a violent collision or to, to crushing or, or breaking. Rebecca had conceived twins and they were actually fighting in her womb. Now over the last few months, prior to, to Jane giving birth, she would, she would quickly say, like, John, touch my tummy. And, she, and we'd, we could feel Vivian moving inside, inside Jane's, Jane's abdomen. And, and it, felt, it felt strange to me. I can't imagine what it would have felt like for Jane. To have a baby moving around in there. But imagine what it would have felt like to have two children fighting in your womb. There's a little biology fact here. There's a particular species of shark known as a sand tiger shark. And these sharks actually engage it in what's referred to as intrauterine cannibalization. 
that there's often up to 10 shark pups inside the womb and what will happen is, is one of them will eat all the others in the womb. It's, it's, it's awful. Thankfully, it's, this wasn't going on here at least, but you know what? In, in, in a sense, it actually was. In a sense, it was going on here. Because in their desire to gain the upper hand, Jacob and Esau didn't care if they destroyed each other. This will be worked out in their lives. This attitude is evident throughout this Toledot, and and it's even going to be evident in their offspring. And sadly, as I said earlier, it's, it's often evident in the church as well, and it's contrary to God's law. Paul says in Galatians 5, 14 and 15, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But hear this, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. There is no place for rivalry in your family or in the church family. Rebecca experiences this, this strife that's, that's taking place in a room, and she's understandably concerned. And she says, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? But notice, she doesn't try to figure it out all by herself. What does she do? She prays. She prays. First, Isaac prayed, and now Rebecca prays. Look at, at the end of verse 22. She went to inquire of the Lord. And he answers her with an oracle. Now, oracles are how God often revealed himself prior to the inscripturation of his word. Here he spoke to Rebekah directly, unmediated by any prophet. He says in verse, verse 23, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Now this oracle serves as an introduction to the story of Abraham. It serves as an introduction to the story of Jacob as God had blessed Adam and Eve in Genesis 1.28 and Abraham in 12.1-3. This oracle is an introduction to the life of, of Isaac and on into the, the rest of this Toledot as, as it begins to focus on the interaction and the rivalry between Jacob and Esau. This is parallel to Abraham's story. Remember, at the beginning of the story, of Abraham's story, we're told that Abraham would father a great nation. Now, Rebekah is told that two nations are within her womb. Two nations, two peoples are in your your womb. And in another parallel to Abraham's story, like Isaac and Ishmael, one was stronger and the older was subservient to the younger. This might not seem fair. But this is, as Alan Ross says, God's divine prerogative for election. This is a theme that we're going to come back to again. God's divine prerogative for election. God's choice of one instead of the other. So now in verses 24 to 28, we see the, the, the twins striving at birth and then also striving in, at, after birth. First, we see the oracle confirmed. There were, there were two boys, twins, in Rebecca's womb. And the first to come out is described as red, covered in hair. It's likely that his, his hair was, was red. That's what, what this, this probably means. But his name is Esau, which means hairy. 
And Moses creates a, a sound play of the name Esau and of the, the noun Her Sear and, and says that, that he, his name means hairy. Now keep that word Sear in mind. It's going gonna, it's gonna to play a role a little bit later on. So next, after Esau, his brother comes out, his hand holding on to his brother's heel, to Esau's heel. This also confirms the oracle, foreshadowing the continued struggle between these two brothers. It parallels the birth of, of Perez and Zerah in chapter 38. And then we're told that the, the name of, of the younger is Jacob, and, and Jacob's name actually has a triple meaning. First from the noun Akeb, which means heel. So this can mean, he may, may he be at your heels. So this can be taken as a positive sense. May God be your rear guard. But can also be a, have a negative connotation. We see from the immediate context, he grasps the heel. As the younger brother usurps his older brother's position. But his name also has another negative connotation that we're going to see in the life of Jacob comes from the verb akab, which means deceived. And we'll see that through his life. Jacob is indeed a deceiver. Esau is going to pick up on this in chapter 27, verse 36, when he bitterly protests after the birthright is stolen from him. He says, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. So we have these, these two names that have, have meanings that are going to figure prominently in their lives and we'll also see are going to figure prominently in the life of Israel. In 27, we, we see that the division between the boys was not only in appearance, but also in interests and character. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. So Esau, like his counterpart Ishmael, became a hunter. And Esau was at home in the wilderness, separate from society. But, but Jacob, on the other hand, was a, was a quiet homebody. And most, most often in Scripture, the word that's translated quiet here speaks of a blamelessness. But here it doesn't seem to have a, a negative or a positive connotation in, in this immediate context. Jacob's usurpation of Esau's birthright is, is not dependent on the character of either individual, but on God's sover sovereign grace. Sufficient to say, though, that the, the boys are as different as chalk and cheese, feeding their rivalry. This, this difference between them just makes their rivalry grow. And you often see this in families, don't you? My, my brother and I barely look alike, nor do we have the same interests. And my own two boys, Owen loves watching hockey with me. And I asked, I asked Liam to watch a, one of the ju World Junior Hockey games with us, and, but Liam said, I don't like hockey. I like animals. Now, I need to be careful in, in my parenting of my, of my boys not to promote one of their interests above the interests of the other. Now, in, in, in our case, it's okay because Liam got his interest in animals from me, as did Owen get his interest in hockey. But that takes us to the issue of verse 28, that of, of parental favoritism. Parental favoritism. Isaac loved Esau because, of his, because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, parents, you need to be very careful not to fan the flames of sibling rivalry with your favoritism. 
comparing one child to the other, loving one child more than the other. There, there are quite often in families, you'll, you'll see that, that, one, that, that one of the children is going to rub you the wrong way a little bit more than the other one. And you'll find that when that's the case, quite often it's because that child is most like you. Be aware of that and be careful not to promote sibling rivalry, never to compare your children with the other, to exalt one over the other, but to be fair, to be impartial in your dealing with them. But here, each, each parent loved a different son. Isaac loved Esau. Rebecca loved Jacob. Partiality is, is going to be theme in the house of Jacob too with his sons, but his his. His favoritism is going to take it to a whole new level. And Isaac's reason for preferring Esau doesn't seem to be very spiritual, does it? He loved him because he ate of his game. Sounds very self-serving. But it foreshadows the confirmation of the oracle as Isaac and Esau both loved game and how the birthright was linked to their appetites. We're not given the, the reason why Rebekah preferred Jacob is possibly due to his domestic leanings. But more likely her preference is because of the Lord's oracle that had been given to her. Because she, she understood what God was going to do through Jacob, that God was going to choose Jacob over and instead of Esau. So she preferred, so she preferred Jacob over Esau. And it makes sense when you think about her role later on in chapter 27, the part that she plays in, in the deception of Isaac. How she willfully deceives her husband and, and, and is complicit. Well, in fact, and she's, she's really driving this deception that takes place of Isaac and, and the, the, the cutting out or the cutting off of Esau. If you know your scriptures, if you remember from Romans 9, Rebecca is not the only one who loved Jacob. Someone else was said to love Jacob in Scripture and to hate Esau. Romans 9.13, in the passage that Vince read for us this morning, the call to worship, and the passage to which we're going to return shortly, Paul quotes Malachi 1, 2, and 3. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Doesn't sound fair to us. We'll spend a little more time on that in a few minutes and look at what's really happening there. Rebecca knew that the Lord would raise Jacob above Esau, and so it seems that she acted on that knowledge. This is an example of God providentially using human means to carry out his sovereign will. So we've seen this, the twins striving before the birth. We've seen the twins striving at birth and, and after birth. And now we see them striving over the birthright in verses 29 to 34. We're told here of a, of a key incident in the, the lives of these, of these two men that are going to play a vital role in their futures as God again providentially uses human means to carry out his sovereign will. One day while Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came out of the field. The ESV says that he was exhausted, but, but other key translations correctly translate it that he was famished. He was famished. So here we have here we have Esau, who's described as a skilled hunter, coming out of the woods skunked, without any game. But as we'll see, Jacob's got game. He's about to skunk Esau. 
And Alan Ross explains that the, the cunning hunter falls into the better hunter's trap, becoming prey to his own appetites. So as Esau comes out of the, the woods famished, Esau says to, to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am famished. And now we're told his other name, Edom, which is a derivation of the, the, the Hebrew word dom, meaning red. And so Dom, these are the, this refers to the, the Edomites. The Edomites who are the descendants of Esau. We're going to see the role that they play a little bit later on. This, this, this nation and this name had a huge significance. And the place that they come from, the, the Edomites, the place that they come from is Seir. Seir, which is again very similar to the name Esau. Again from Alan Ross. The red man was overcome by his physical appetites for the red stuff and sold his birthright. The heel grabber cunningly overtook his brother and gained the birthright. So here Jacob reveals himself as a master manipulator. In verse 31, Jacob says, Sell me your birthright now. Now there's no demonstration here at all of of filial loyalty or brotherly love, not even of human compassion. And no, no doubt that Jacob knew of the oracle about him as opposed to his brother, but, but the scheming opportunist now takes his chance. He cooks up a scheme whereby he can take the birthright from his brother. Now we, we look at the word birthright in, scri in scripture, it, it refers to priority in inheritance. It also refers to the priority in blessing, which is tied to the inheritance. So we're going to see in chapter 27. It refers also to priority of authority. So by taking the birthright, Jacob would, would receive the, the lion's share of, of the inheritance and the blessing from Isaac that had come down through Abraham, and that he would also <coughs> take authority to rule over the household. Later on in Scripture, and in Deuteronomy 21, 15 to 17, we'll see that, that it's, it's decreed in the law that that two-thirds of the inheritance was to go to the older brother. But that law may not have been in effect yet. We, we saw earlier in the chapter that, that Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But now look at Esau's exa exaggerated response. He's revealing a lack of discretion. He says, I am about to die. Of what use is this birthright to me? Now most commentators say he, he wasn't likely about to die from starvation. If he's about to die from, from starvation, one bowl of soup isn't going to do the job. But Jacob knew that he had his prey cornered. And so he said, pray, he said, swear to me now. And so Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. Esau ate and drank and rose and went his way. This, this terse description adds to the picture of, of Esau's flippancy. Moses gives us the verdict on Esau. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now even though Jacob threw some, some bread into the bargain, this was one costly bowl of soup. Esau will forget the oath in, in chapter 27, but the Lord is not going to forget. Jacob swindled his brother out of his birthright. He was the true soup Nazi. 
Deception will loom large in his life, not only in this passage, but throughout his story, even into the next Toledot. Jacob will be both the perpetrator and the victim. He swindles his brother Esau and is swindled himself by his brother, by rather his uncle Laban. He is going to deceive his own father and be deceived by his own sons. Walter Brueggemann says that Jacob is announced as a viable expression of God's remarkable graciousness in spite of the face of conventional definitions of reality and prosperity. Jacob is a scandal from the beginning. The powerful grace of God is a scandal. It upsets the way that we would organize life. The Apostle Paul in Romans 9 uses Jacob and Esau to describe election. Please turn with me in your Bible to Romans chapter 9, the passage that was read for us by Vince earlier. The focus on this section in uh, verses uh, 6 down to 13. Look at the end of verse 13. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. But notice that we're talking about God's purpose according to election. Back up a little bit. Um, in This means in verse 8, this means that not the children of the flesh are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. So it's going back now to the, the, the promise of the birth of, of Isaac. About this time, uh, next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And then we talk in verse 10 and following about this, this uh, the birth of, of Esau and Jacob. Notice in verse 11, they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. But in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. Verse 12, which, which quotes what we, we read earlier from verse 23 of, of Genesis 25. She was told the older will serve the younger. And this quote from Malachi, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. The salvation, the choice of Jacob instead of Esau. We've seen Jacob's character. There was nothing in Jacob to commend himself to the Lord or really to anyone. But God's purpose of election not of works, but of God's sovereign grace. It's not as though God looked through the corridors of time and saw that Jacob was going to serve him. So he said, he said I'm going to choose Jacob because he's going to serve me. No, it is not because of works. Not because of works done before, not because of works that are done after. It is because of God's sovereign grace, because of his sovereign election. And here in Romans 9, the, the Apostle Paul, he understands that there's, there's going to be some, some response to this. So he, he assumes the question. He says, what will we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And so he takes another example from Scripture. He shows that, that uh, from verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God and who will have mercy. It is based on God's mercy. Use the example here of Pharaoh. For this very purpose I have raised you up, 
that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So just like Pharaoh, Esau was hardened. But Jacob was chosen. And maybe there's some here who's still sitting here thinking, well, that's not fair. Trust me, you don't want fair. If you want fair, we're all doomed. If you want fair, we all go to hell. If you want fair, the, son is, the, the righteous son is not crushed in our place. But God has done that which is not fair in punishing his son so that we could receive life in him from our human economy, from our, our, our feeble minds, our feeble fallen minds, it doesn't make sense. It's not fair to us. But God is infinitely higher than us. And so, like, like Paul questions, can we answer back to God? May it never be. Just think about your life for a minute. Think about the life of Abraham. When he, when he was called, he was a pagan living in a pagan land. And when you were called, you were a pagan living in a pagan land. So we've seen here already that, that God is sovereign over birth. As Isaac prayed and, and Rebekah conceived. But God is not just sovereign over birth. God is sovereign over the new birth. Through Jacob, Israel, and Esau, Edom, though they shared the same womb, they would be divided in life and divided in eternity. This is God's divine right in election. So again, God is sovereign not only over birth, but he is sovereign over the new birth. People who are, are born, spiritually born, not merely by natural worth, but by the working of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of the elect by God's sovereign grace. And if you are here as a Christian this morning, you have received God's sovereign grace in election. You are the beneficiary of God's sovereign grace. As I spoke to the kids, I'll speak about myself. If I was choosing people for God's kingdom, I would not have chosen me. There was nothing in me that would commend myself. And prior to getting saved or after I've gotten saved, there's nothing in me that would commend me to God. I am a recipient of God's sovereign grace. And if you are here as a Christian, you too are a recipient of God's sovereign grace. That is the message of Romans 9 as a reflection of God's message in Genesis 25. Even though Jacob is never directly condemned for his behavior, neither is he condemned for his explicit deception of his father later. As is so often the case in sibling rivalry and most human conflict, the behavior of neither party is exemplary. On the one hand, you have Jacob who swindled his brother on the time of, in a time of need. On the other, you have Esau who didn't care about his spiritual heritage. They both look bad. But it's Esau who is presented here in the worst light. As he despised his birthright. Yet again, we see how God providentially uses human means to carry out his sovereign will, even Esau's or Jacob's sinful deed. 
Well, and Esau's sinful deed. Just think for a moment about how the Lord has used your sin to achieve his purposes for you. When I look back on my life, I can, I can see that, that God used my sin and the, the gravity of my sin to bring me to my knees. So I had no pretenses to think that I was a good person. I didn't need someone to do the right comfort thing with me. I already knew that I was not a good person. God used the, uh, also uses the negative experiences that, that I've experienced to be, able, to be able to help me to help others. As, as I was able to, to help with that, that couple, that homeless couple, it's because I, I had a little taste of, of some of what they're experiencing and I was able to, to minister to them. Now I know that we don't, we don't need to have experienced exactly what somebody else has, has experienced and able to be able to, be able to minister to them because we minister to others with the comfort that we received, not with our own comfort. But remember how God has used and is using even your sin for his glory and for your good in your life. Even those things, those burdens and those battles that you, you still wage on a day-to-day -day basis, those things that you, you fear, am I ever going to overcome this? God is doing something greater than you can even imagine. God is going to use your struggles for his glory and for your good. You are promised that in his scriptures. This is a verse we go to again and again. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. For you have been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God is using those trials in your life, those struggles to make you more like Jesus. And it's not necessarily going to happen in the way you want or in your time frame, but rest assured, it's going to be glorious when it happens. So God is using your sin to achieve his purposes. And, and, and even though that's true, in no way, shape, or form does that justify your behavior, but it simply declares and, and, and glorifies God's sovereign grace. As Sidney Grudanis explains, contrary to human customs, in his grace, God chooses the younger Jacob, Israel, to, su to rule over the older Esau, Edom. Jacob is Israel, Esau is Edom. Israel would be stronger, Israel, Esau would be, uh, Edom would be subservient to Israel. It's God's divine purpose that matters. Not personality, not character, or even the plans of the participants themselves, but God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are yet again on display. Scripture teaches both. We embrace both. We're not hyper-Calvinists. Scriptures teach God's sovereignty and man's responsibility right next to each other, even often in the same verse. And so we embrace both. So let's think for a few moments about Israel. As Israel received this from the Lord, they knew what it was like to be the firstborn. Israel was the firstborn people of God. Their name, Israel, comes through Jacob, who will be renamed Israel by the Lord in Genesis 32, 28. But think about what happened to Israel just prior to the receiving this scripture from Moses. You can find this in your scriptures, you don't need to turn there now, but, but after Israel escapes from Egypt, in Numbers 20, 14 to 21, Moses requests safe passage from the king of Edom 
along the king's highway. They say, we're not going to turn off the path. We're not going to take anything. We're not even going to drink water. We're just going to pass straight through. Please let us pass through your land. Give us safe passage. What does the king of Edom do? He refuses. He's, in fact, he says that, that if you try to pass through our land, we're going to come out against you with our army. And they actually muster their army to, to repel Israel from going through the land of Edom, through their territory. So this just happened. And as Israel is about to now lay siege on the, on the, for, in order to claim the promised land, they're go going to draw comfort from the fact that God had chosen them to be victorious over their adversaries. Friends, God has chosen you by His sovereign grace to be victorious over your adversaries, over the world and sin and the devil. You could take comfort in the same way that Israel took comfort in receiving these words. But this oracle, this, this older servant the younger is not going to be fulfilled for another thousand years. Isaac waited 20 years for his children to be born. This is another thousand years before this is fulfilled. And in 2 Samuel 8, 14, when the Edom, all the Edomites became David's servants. But that's not the end of Edom. Later on, Edom is going to rise up against Israel. In fact, they're going to join with Babylon in, in, driving, in driving Israel out of Jerusalem and into captivity. But the battle continues yet again. Even in the New Testament, as we find King Herod, an Idumean, an Edomite, ruling Israel harshly as Rome's puppet king. And what does Herod do? He slaughters all the boys in Bethlehem, two years old or younger, in an attempt to kill Christ, the king of the Jews. The war between Edom and Israel continues because this is really the war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And this battle that we see played out then in chapter 25, 19 to 34, is the same battle that we see played out on Calvary as the seed of the woman crushes the serpent's head. As Jesus Christ earns our victory for us. Now as we reflect on Jacob, he may resemble the seed of the serpents from time to time and here in his life, but, but we see that his choice as a result of election is by God's sovereign grace. So when the Lord answers Isaac's prayer and provides a son, provides two sons, he's not primarily concerned with, with a son for Isaac or Rebekah. Nor is he primarily even concerned with providing a child that is going to father the Jewish people. And even as that child is going to be, Jacob is going to be renamed Israel by the Lord himself. His ultimate aim, the Lord's ultimate aim in answering this prayer is to provide a son who will be a savior for all his people, whether Jew or Gentile. God crushed his son so that you can receive the inheritance, so that you can be adopted into his family. God promised true Israel, his chosen people in the Old Testament, victory over their enemies, and they're awaiting that final fulfillment of victory. 
He promises his chosen people in the New Testament, his church, victory over our enemies as well. He's accomplished that victory by crushing the serpent's head. So in Revelation, we see the war between the church and the world raging. raging. It's not until 17, 14 of, Gen of Revelation that they will make war with the Lamb and the Lamb will conquer them for He is Lord of lords and King of kings and those with Him who are called and chosen and faithful. The battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent between the church and the world will continue until the Lord returns. But we who are in Christ are on the victorious side. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we see this, this battle between these two brothers, Lord, we see it in the context of redemption history and what you are doing to deliver your people, your chosen people from, from Israel and from the Gentile nations. Lord, we see that it is by your sovereign grace. We see, Lord, that, that even though the battle rages, Lord, we know that final victory has been assured because you have won that victory for us in Christ on the cross. And so, Lord, as your people who have been purchased by the blood of Christ, Lord, as your people who are brothers and sisters in Christ, help us, Lord, we pray, to walk in that unity and so reflect the love of Christ that your name might be exalted and that your church might grow for the glory of your name. Amen.